0: A financial plan requires planning. It's savings, RRSPs, investments, and planning for the unexpected. TD Term Life Insurance can help protect your family's financial future if you were to unexpectedly pass away. You can apply for TD Term Life Insurance online or over the phone by speaking to a licensed advisor. If you're under the age of 55, you could be approved for up to $500,000 of coverage without a medical exam. Conditions apply. TD Term Life Insurance is underwritten by TD Life Insurance Company. Visit tdinsurance.com slash termlife to learn more. The night of September 30th, 2017 will be burned into the memory of Edmontonians for years. That night, a man ran down a police officer before stabbing him, then used a U-Haul truck as a weapon on a busy downtown street. More than three years after the attacks, there are still questions left unanswered. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Edmonton Journal justice reporter Johnny Wakefield joins me to discuss new details uncovered in the case, why, despite the appearance of an act of terrorism, those charges were not pursued, and why we may never get a full picture of the motivation behind these crimes. Don't forget you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Johnny, for those who don't remember, who is Abdullahi Sharif and what was he convicted of doing?
1: Well, Sharif was convicted of trying to kill five people in what police called a terror attack in September 2017. So what happened is he ran his car into a police officer, Mike Chernick, outside of a CFL football game that was happening in town and then disappeared for several hours. And in the intervening time, police found a ISIS flag in the car, which led to a citywide manhunt. And a few hours after this, he turns up behind the wheel of a U-Haul truck at a police checkpoint and leads officers on a high-speed chase through downtown Edmonton, during which four people are hit by the truck. And this all only ends when police drive a a pickup into the U-Haul truck, knock it over, and drag him out of the windshield. So... It was this really shocking thing that happened in Edmonton and it was really a sort of dramatic and disturbing night.
0: I remember that night quite well. I, w- I wasn't working that night, but I remember seeing all of the details kind of come in about what was going on. It was kind of like the attacks that we'd seen in other cities coming home to our backyard, which was pretty shocking. But one of the things that sticks out about the case is ultimately there are a lack of details and a lot of unanswered questions You know, why he did it. What was his motivations? Were there any connections to any broader terror movement? And why is it that there's a gap in that information?
1: One of the biggest things is that
0: Shreve didn't do anything at trial, which was very
1: strange. And by anything, I mean, he didn't defend himself. He didn't have a defense lawyer. He didn't even speak. And this was kind of the sudden thing that happened in the lead up to the 2019 trial. He fired his lawyers and just kind of refused to participate in the process. And because of that means we didn't get a lot of his side of the story or any sort of alternative possible theories for what actually had happened here. And another one was there was just sort of this kind of confusion about what exactly, if any, role terrorism played in this. Police, as I said, initially called this a terrorist attack, but the Crown never laid terrorism charges. So they didn't really seek to prove anything related to terrorism. They just had a a pretty straightforward attempted murder case that, that, I mean, they didn't even actually use, uh, as I came to call it, the T-word during the trial. They didn't give any sort of theories for why exactly he did this they just proved that he kind of made a little plan and then attacked all of these people, but they they never really attempted to prove the why. Mm -hmm. And that was something that came up throughout the trial. I mean, we had the lead investigator and the lead crown prosecutor saying, we may never know why he did this. And some people may look at it and say, look, he had an ISIS flag in his car. He did stuff that resembles other ISIS attacks. Um, Obviously, ISIS didn't claim this particular attack, but I mean, it it looked like, sort of what a follower of ISIS or somebody inspired by ISIS does. But that may be true on one hand, but I also think when we say we don't really exactly know why he did it, I mean, we don't have a lot of the nitty gritty. We don't have what sent him off. Mm-hmm. We don't know what he was watching, listening to. We just kind of have the vague outlines of sort of him doing things to sort of prepare for this. But a lot of that's still kind of
0: murky. And as you say, he'd never said anything about why he did what he did when it came to trial or even when he was in custody. Like you went to a lot of lengths to fill in some of these blanks. Why don't you walk us through kind of what we did to get to the point where we got some more information on this case?
1: Yeah. And like I said, there's some things that about this article were kind of unsatisfying because I just, I posed a bunch of questions and some of them really the only conclusion I could draw is we may never know unless he decides to, for some reason, start speaking out from prison. Mm-hmm. But The big thing that we did for this particular article was get the search warrants for his house and his vehicles. Those were sealed until last August. So those weren't in any way in evidence at the trial. And the interesting thing about them is this was when police still were surmising that this was a terror attack. And they said that, you know, if we go into his house, we're probably going to find various things associated with terrorist paraphernalia and electronic devices and maybe evidence that he communicated with anyone about this there's sort of interesting tidbits scattered throughout these documents. They sort of go into a bit of detail about maybe what he had done to prepare for this. So one of the things was making the flags that were found. And so a bunch of the items that they seized were kind of arts and crafts projects (laughs) and supplies. So you have um, paints brushes, dowels, things of that nature. There were a couple of other I'm guessing prototypes for the original flag. yeah so there was a there was a different flag there. there were a couple they were described only as Isis t-shirts. a phrase that stuck in my mind it almost seems a little silly when you see it put that way. That mm-hmm. shouldn't be all that surprising. I mean these flags are usually homemade. A lot of the stuff involved in the sorts of violent incidents like this that will be homemade weapons bombs or whatever not not that's not something that they found specifically in this case but the fact that he had made these flags himself isn't all that surprising but does i think sort of provide a window into what he was doing what his life was like and sort of the scene that he was living in
0: did any of the documents kind of uncover any of his personal interactions people that he would have spoken with or spent any time with in the time that he was in edmonton before these attacks
1: yeah, I mean, as much as it was relevant to the case that police were dealing with at that point, they had found, as part of this document they were drafting to get the search warrant, they had found basically a mention of Sharif in a police database saying, hey, back in 2015, a, a former co-worker had reported him for having what the police referred to as terrorism ideologies. So this came from a coworker. Sharif was a laborer. He worked in sort of construction and hazardous materials removal and stuff like that. And this coworker, who was 15 years old at the time, interestingly said that he was working with Sharif when he had a summer job with a particular Edmonton company, and that he would sort of rant and listen to what this this 15 year old coworker described as ISIS propaganda and speeches and stuff. The two sort of became comfortable with each other, and this coworker drew him out a little bit. And apparently, according to this complaint, at least. Shulief would rant about Shia Muslims and um, polytheists and just sort of go through ISIS cliff notes in terms of what ISIS's ideology is. Mm -hmm. So it seems like he had started engaging with that sort of thing around 2015, which a little after, a little sort of around ISIS's heyday. So a lot of that went into the search warrant saying we're going to look through his house and we believe based on this and the style of attack that happened that we're probably going to find evidence of paraphernalia and planning and communications that were had prior to this attack. It's interesting. A a lot of that just kind of didn't pan out. Like I said, we had the arts and crafts supplies and the ISIS t-shirts, but none of the items mentioned there were anything like a computer or a cell phone or um, any sort of social media messages So, I mean, if they did find any indication that he had communicated about actually doing something violent, instead of just kind of ranting and talking a big game to a coworker, if they found any evidence of him actually having communicated about his plan, there was nothing that police found, at least that we know of.
0: Like there weren't any emails or a phone that they got information off of that indicated, you know, he'd communicated with others who were supportive of ISIS or others who may have been sympathetic to what he ultimately wanted to do in Edmonton? He did have a phone
1: and for some reason this doesn't come up in the search warrants but we know from police that he had a phone. One of the the interesting wrinkles in this case is the police chief at the time, Rod Connect, after he had left the role, went to Australia and attended a counterterrorism conference where he sort of talked about this because, I mean, for Edmonton Police, this was a very successful response. I mean, five people were injured, some extremely severely, but, I mean, no one died. They didn't fire a shot. So Connect was somebody who would be interesting to speak at a a counterterrorism conference, and he went there and said that the suspect in this particular case had an encrypted device, which we later learned was just a phone with a password that they couldn't get into. Mm -hmm. And he said, basically... If we had been able to do that, we might have found evidence of people who kind of helped along the way or sort of knew about this. And I talked to Connect for this article, and he said, look, that's just an educated guess. And he didn't really get into specifics of why they couldn't access it. But I've talked to lawyers who basically said this could be something as simple as Shriek declined to unlock his phone. And police don't really have a way to force their way into somebody's encrypted phone. So. Mm -hmm. A doubt we'll ever know if there was actually interesting information on that phone from the, the terrorism standpoint, but that's sort of another one of these areas where you sort of hit a wall trying to find out more about this
0: case. And as we've talked about, you know, at the time, there's a the flag in the vehicle, the police talk about investigating it as a act of terror. As you said in your article on it, it passes the duck test where if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. But despite it looking very much like it had, you know, all the hallmarks of an ISIS-inspired attack, like you'd seen in European cities where vehicles were rammed into crowds of pedestrians, authorities here didn't pursue terror charges. Is it just a case that they just didn't have a wealth of evidence to support that it was done to further an ideology?
1: I think that's probably it. I mean, I say in the article that this kind of weird ambiguity settled over this case because at first everyone referred to it as a terror attack. Mm-hmm. and then sort of as time went on and it became apparent that oh terrorism charges haven't been laid and it doesn't look like they will be that people began to sort of refer to it in this oblique way saying here are the charges he faces They're only attempted murder police had said that they were investigating this as an act of terrorism but no terrorism charges have ever been laid so again like the duck test thing I said for, for many people they just say you know look at this like what? how is this not and I mean the authorities who investigated it after Shriek's trial maintained, yes, this is charges or no, we think this was a terrorism attack. Like you said, I think that the reason that those terror charges were never pursued is probably pretty simple. They just didn't think that they had the evidence. So I, I talked to Michael Nesbitt, who is a UFC national security law expert, and that's he sort of looked over these documents and said yeah, look like if everything That's in the public record right now is the extent of their evidence. I can sort of understand why they wouldn't have gone for the terror charges. Because, I mean, terror charges and terror trials are complicated. You do have to prove something was done for ideological reasons. Mm -hmm. And if all you really have are some paints, some arts and crafts stuff, some flags, and really nothing else, nothing like a manifesto or evidence of communications or training, then that wouldn't have been a particularly strong terrorism case And he would have had all the complication of doing that trial on top of the attempted murder stuff when, you know, with attempted murder, they got 28 years in prison. So, I mean, from a prosecution standpoint, that's pretty good. I mean, that got the job done. It's going to separate him from society for a long time. Yeah. So they didn't really, they may have done the cost-benefit analysis and decided, do we want to try to prove terrorism? Is that worth it? Is that going to be worth the time and resources? And, I mean, it seems that their, their decision was that no, it wouldn't be.
0: What about his mental state at the time of the crime and his behavior after his arrest? Did the documents that you uncovered shed any light on kind of what was going on in his head?
1: Yeah, that's one of the really big question marks that still hangs over this. So I spoke to Shrieks. She described herself as his, his common law partner kind of in the lead up to this, mm-hmm. and that she sort of left him in the months before, mainly because he seemed to have had basically a mental breakdown that in her telling, he kind of refused to do anything about. And Sharif had apparently told her that in his past, he had been treated for what he called manic depression, which is my understanding that's kind of an interchangeable word for bipolar. But it's really hard to say for certain whether that was a factor here. He underwent two psychiatric evaluations right after his arrest. And... Typically, if he had done those and had a defense lawyer, the defense lawyer at some point probably would have made them evidence in the trial. So we would have a chance to read those and see what the doctors who actually evaluated him had to say. But because Sharif fired his lawyers and went to trial without any sort of defense lawyer, we'll probably never see those documents. Mm -hmm. So the question of his mental health, I mean, it looks like there are signs that he was not doing well mentally, but it's really hard to say anything definitive about that. Because these reports will likely never be made public, and I mean, another point is that I mean, just generally, from what we know of the evidence out there, it seems like his life wasn't going particularly well. yeah, we know, for example, that he had been ordered evicted from his apartment that May. We don't know why that happened, but he started paying rent again and was allowed to stay. but that kind of suggests some instability. And then, during his time in police headquarters, Sharif talked to an undercover officer and told him that his work permit had expired, that his insurance on his vehicle had expired, and that was part of how he explained why he drove his car into the cop. He said he freaked out because he thought the cop was trying to pull him over. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really know if that makes sense, but that's that's sort of what he presented. And then he went on to say things like, you know, he didn't have any friends or family here, that he didn't have work. And that the night that all of this happened, he said it was kind of like a dream, is how the undercover described it. Mm -hmm. And basically that he'd wanted to kill himself. So those are all things that are sort of out there in the public realm and we're kind of just left to piece them together.
0: As someone who covers trials on a regular basis and you usually get, you know, this is what happened. This is who did it. This is likely why they did it. Or at least you get some kind of explanation What's your thoughts on this kind of high profile case caught a city and a country's attention and to be left with these lingering questions?
1: I don't know. It is frustrating. And that's why I think I pursued this for so long. And I get that it is kind of weird to have this story coming out in February 2021. But a lot of this stuff was sealed until last summer. And then it took us a while to put it together with the the pandemic on top of everything. Mm -hmm. Sort of the way I sum it up is this was this really traumatic event in the life of this city, and we didn't really get all that close to the full story. This was an attempt to sort of put forward the questions that are still out there and try to get a little bit closer to answering them. But again, I think the only way that we would find any answers is if for some reason Sharif decides to start explaining his side of the story, which given the fact that he didn't choose to do that while facing a potential life sentence in prison probably means that we won't but this was my best effort to get us a little bit closer
0: he was sentenced to 28 years as you mentioned ultimately he'll serve some or all of that and then be sent back to somalia is that what will happen yeah
1: i mean that's extremely likely i believe his immigration status is his he's just uh he was on a work permit basically and he had been he had been a convention refugee he had come here after fleeing violence in somalia Mm -hmm. had quite a amazing trek here i mean through africa south america up to the united states but it sounds like he never completed his permanent residency application let alone his citizenship so
0: mm-hmm.
1: the odds that he would be deported for this are very high
0: it definitely was a fascinating story in edmonton's history and certainly many questions remain johnny thanks for spelling this out for us yeah thanks dave Ten Three is produced by sean knox theme music by bryce hall Thanks to my guest, Johnny Wakefield. More from him at edmontonjournal.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.